1: Today marks episode seven of the second volume of Core Curriculum, a Christian Humanist radio network series in which we are doing slow reads through the works of the Columbia University Great Book Syllabus. And in this volume, our quarry is Plato's Republic. Today, we move to book seven of this most famous of Plato's dialogues. Joining me today to discuss book seven of The Republic are Carla Ewart from the Christian Feminist Podcast, hailing from the great city of Minneapolis. How are things up in the Twin Cities now that we're no longer in single-digit temperatures? <laughs> all
2: right. They're not bad right now, actually. There is lots of snow, but temperatures aren't bad. So, going well.
1: It's all good. At least you're not getting ice. That's, right. Uh, that's, that's, that's the one thing. And I just learned something about the Twin Cities. I, I, I just learned that the Twin Cities has nothing to do with St. Paul.
2: Really? Well, you have to teach me that. That's not a thing I know.
1: No, it originally comes from the cities that were on opposite sides of the Mississippi River, one of which was St. Anthony's Falls, and the other was Minneapolis. And they joined together, but they were called the Twin Cities before St. Paul ever joined up, as it were.
2: Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that, because St. Anthony is still, you know, an area that is, like you're saying, part of Minneapolis, north side. So, oh, that's interesting. I did not know that.
0: Sorry, I had no idea. Everything mm-hmm. I know about the Twin Cities, I learned from Mary Tyler Moore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> not yeah, a bad source. Me too, for a very long time. <laughs> well, I'm not from uh, here originally, so that I get some excuse for not knowing details, I think. <laughs>
1: good, good enough. <clears throat> uh, also with me today, straight out of Woodstock, Georgia, home of the former professional wrestler Buff Bagwell, is one of the hosts of our network's flagship show, the Christian Humanist podcast. This would be Michael Farmer. How's everything down
3: there? Good, Todd, the sort of research you can do when you're on sabbatical. I've never heard of Buff Bagwell or whatever his <laughs> name was. Maybe you'd rather maybe you'd rather claim Dean
1: Rusk than who I don't who, know who uh, that is either. Dean wow. Rusk? Oh my goodness. Well, Dean Rusk is Secretary of State under Kennedy. Uh, oh. So if you know a little Vietnam War history, maybe you know who he is, but so uh, maybe
3: the professional wrestler's better. <laughs> <laughs> you think maybe, maybe so. but uh, you know I' grew going up. I grew up not far from Jake the Snick Roberts. His uh, his daughter was in Girl Scouts with my sister.
1: Oh, that's uh, that's hilarious. Uh, so from one
3: professional wrestler to another, I guess.
1: Well, a, for, a former a former pastor of mine uh, once was friends with Ted DiBiase. So I don't know who that is. I'm sorry, I never really a million dollar man. Oh, well, we need Gilmore. Where's Gilmore when we need him? Right. <laughs> <clears throat> Last but not least, chuckling away is the sage from Central Pennsylvania, the Count of the Mount, Danny Anderson, assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College and host
0: of the Sectarian Review. Doctor Danny, how's life? Oh, I love the Count of the Mount. I'm gonna, I might get a sign and put that on my door. Actually, that's uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, no, things are great. Um, I've had a, a very wonderful um, between semesters a uh, little moment here in my life. It's been a very nice little break, actually. So I'm feeling um, very, very excited to speak with smart people again about cool things like Play-Doh.
3: And okay. who knows how you'll feel when this actually airs in late February, <laughs> early March.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people will all be wondering, what are they talking about cold weather? Come on. <laughs>
2: I'm not here. We'll still have cold weather. <laughs> I
1: was, I was going to say,
2: <laughs> we'll be, be back. back
1: in
3: single digits for Carla.
2: It's just... I totally...
1: We'll be back in single digits next week, from what I understand. So, (laughs) anyway, um, so uh, your host for these proceedings is yours truly, Todd Pedler. I'm one of the hosts of the Book of Nature and professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, um, just about two and a half hours south of Carla. Over the course of the past six episodes of Core Curriculum, Volume 2, you've been drawn into the conversation between Socrates and his interlocutors, uh, principally Glaucon and Glaucon's brother Adimantus, about the ideal city and the ideal soul, not only some of the organizational principles that might apply to each, but about the uh, the means of training up the leadership of the city, and by inference of uh, training the individual. Uh, In order to achieve the order that flourishing of the city and of the soul alike require. In book six, which if you're following along in a good platonic orderly manner, you've just heard a discussion among our friends Ed Song, Nathan Gilmore, and Jay Eldred about why philosophers, that is lovers and students of wisdom, are alone qualified to rule the city and how the masses simply will not accept this point of view. You've heard also that not only must the city's leaders possess virtues of courage, moderation, wisdom, and justice, but they must also be capable of learning the higher things, that which is the ultimate good, good itself. So by way of introducing the topic with which Book 7 is largely concerned, I think it's going to be helpful for our listeners to hear perhaps a bit more about the idea of Plato's notion of form and appearance or perception and reality and so forth that he begins to lay out in book six and then carries forward into book seven. So maybe we can start there. Um, Anybody have anything they'd maybe like to muse on uh, with regard to uh, these notions? Um, Perhaps we maybe talk about the divided line, but um, let's go uh, find out where you guys want to go.
0: Well, I mean, it's, I have to confess, I did not go back and reread book six. I read um, this uh, Plato's Republic many times in my master's program because I, I used it in my master's thesis so I've just kind of gone back and, and read the uh, the pertinent uh, chapters um, the, the shows I've been appearing on here but um, the, my memory of the sort of uh, forms and ideals is that there's this sort of like universal um, or me- like metaphysical um, Real world, right? Um, in which uh, we are just sort of living in kind of a uh, facsimile of, like, of a pale, um, a pale kind of impression of. And so, if there's a, an ideal table, um, no table that exists in our world actually achieves that ideal. Uh, that that's sort of how I remember it. Um, and you guys can correct me where I am wrong on that. Uh, but it does no table achieves the ideal, but all tables partake of
3: the ideal. And in fact, that is what makes them tables
0: yeah yeah there's an idea of tableness. you guys got into this todd with your um abstract oh what was oh, it oh your, your I, you know, abstract
1: thought yeah yeah abstract thought versus versus concrete for sure yeah. um and i wouldn't necessarily want to reprise everything that we you know discussed there but um you know the the i the, the idea of this thing, which super you know I, I guess supersedes all um, concrete examples of that thing, uh, is what is, is what is referred to in 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 this the divided line analogy, which is brought up at the uh, tail end of book uh, book six. Um, it's the difference between the intelligible and the visible the visible realm is the the, the realm of all objects that are um, that are instantiated cases of you know we could we could go we could through the go through the discussion of uh, do we all have cats does everybody know uh, of a particular cat why don't you describe that cat well all cats share some essence right they share uh, this this notion of catness not to be confused with hunger games I guess um, <laughs> Not an but they, necessarily <laughs> <laughs> but 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 there but but there 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 is this notion of catness of, the, uh, of what a cat is, and my three cats are all very different um but they share an essence they share a reality they share they point to a reality I should say, and uh, I think Plato would say uh they point to this this real thing, this idea of a cat um that transcends them all, if you will um the 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 notion of intelligibility and visibility uh, aren't they, they aren't meant to separate um, so cleanly I mean you can know you can you can have uh, in, in, intelligible thoughts of, of physical things of, of of physical instances of of individual uh, real objects that are before you. Um, but that which can be known by the mind is something which is at a higher level. Mm. So it's at this intelligible side of this divided line between intelligible and visible.
3: More real is, is I think, an important term here. So it's not yeah. just bedness or or uh, catness exists. It's that those things exist much more than any actual bed or existent cat uh, do. And that that's what's so hard for people to... I think to accept about platonic idealism it's not just that it's not just that those things exist i mean aristotle believes they exist he just believes they're instantiated in the particular objects they exist apart from the particular objects for plato and they they exist in a truer sense than the um than the particular objects
2: i think it was Let's, interesting what ahead. you said though michael about that they partake in it so they're less than it but they also are a true reflection of it in some way yes. Is that how you would understand
3: that? It is, yeah. So so for something to be a bed, it is a bed because it participates
2: right.
3: in bedness. And I, I think this is easy to understand if you've spent much time with classical theism, because um, classical theism talks about goodness that way, that we um, goodness, we are good in as much as we participate in God, the ultimate form of goodness, I guess you could say. Um, so you, you, can see there where Plato's, uh, metaphysics are, are influential on later versions of Christianity. And that's, that's usually the route I take with, took with my students when I wanted them to understand and maybe accept this. I'm not a Platonist, but I always tried to get them to, to kind of go along with whoever we were reading. And, and I, I think if, if you believe that God is in some ways more real than us, even though, or because he does not have a corporeal form, God, the father anyway, uh, then you at least dovetail with Platonism. I mean, there's, there's, mm-hmm. something, there's something there that rhymes with Platonic idealism.
1: Interesting. Do you, um, and this, we're, we're, we're going to be leaping forward here into book seven really fast here, but that, that's fine. Um, what about the question of change and the difference between the intelligible realm and the, and, and the visible realm? There's a distinction Re-
3: Right? right, yeah. So bedness doesn't change even though a particular bed can break down and fall apart, right? Right. Or uh, bedness doesn't change even though I could go to my bed and add a uh, a canopy around it if, if <laughs> I wanted to sleep like a princess in a Disney movie. <laughs> I, so I could I,
2: – <laughs> In, in that sense, the particular. modern is, king, royal, right? I mean, <laughs> well, sure. I, <laughs> well, I he just
1: needed like, to get the be- before they were live, uh, <laughs> references.
3: right? Right. Yeah. I spend all my time thinking about Disney movies now. <laughs> so, but yeah, so so the particular object is capable of change, but the the form, the universal form, is not. And and it's one thing when you're talking about beds, and another thing when you're talking about oh, I don't know, the form of the human or something like that, because individual humans obviously change and decay. Um, but the idea of humanity or humanness does not change,
1: and so to go to the sort of neoplatonic ideas that inhabit some sectors of Christianity, you can then go ahead and go to the ultimate form right the the form of the good who is who is God who is unchanging
3: right christian neoplatonisms uh, innovation or maybe just neoplatonism in general i've not read yeah. plotinus it's it's innovation is to say that the form of the good is a person
1: right mm. um any other any other thoughts about before that before we before we jump into
0: jump into the cave jump into the cave. <laughs> does well, one jump, jump into the cave uh, that, what you guys were just talking about one thing that i kind of still struggle with is uh plato's distinction between being and becoming uh that uh we, he talks about at the end of this of, of this chapter of this book and so um i think what you guys were just kind of talking through is a good primer for that discussion <laughs> that'll come that will come up later in this discussion i think
3: sure sure um before before we go on i did have two other things it was really one other thing in two parts uh, when I wanted students to understand this notion of deforms, forms, I, I used two examples, and I think they're pretty good examples because I used them for eight years or whatever. Uh, one of them, I would, I would pick out multiple um, shades of blue in the room. So I would say, oh, well, this person's wearing blue jeans, and this person's wearing a blue shirt, and this person's wearing a blue jacket. And they're all different colors blue, but we know immediately that they are all blue. That suggests there is a form of blueness. Now, there's a response to that, which is that blue is an arbitrary spectrum of colors that we've decided on. So that's the kind of, what that's a nominalist response, nominalism being the idea that there are no forms, whether they're off in the ether or whether they're instantiated in particular beings. They're just things we call things. But the other the other example, I think, is a pretty good refutation of nominalism as well, which is that none of us has ever seen a perfectly straight line, and yet... We know if a line is more or less straight. Well, how do we know that unless we have some conception of perfect straightness? Right. Right. And that, yeah, go ahead, Carla.
2: But if we've never, if we've never seen one, we don't actually have a conception of perfect straightness. We have our, like the form that we have called straight thus far (laughs) and how or, how or not something aligns with that. You know what I'm saying?
3: Well I mean that that's one answer, but Plato's answer would be that actually you you're kind of born knowing what straight is and and you're you're born knowing that because you reincarnated from a previous uh, experience of the forms essentially but I, I think you if, if you're not a nominalist, if you're not just saying well straight straight is just a word we give to something, um, I think you would have to say that you're you're born with some cognizance of perfect straightness, even though you've never um seen anything that's physically perfectly straight
1: right and this is where kant would go too right i mean kant would run down that line sorry um you know and and <laughs> and and say we know what a right angle is we know what a straight line is we know what a circle is even if we've never seen anything that's exactly uh you know that it has exactly those properties um And I, you know, when I teach this, this is, this is where I tend to go. I tend to go to geometry, which is, you know, in good Greek tradition, I think it's a good place to go Uh, because people do, you know, people do have a conception of what a, what a circle is. Um, And all they've got is imperfect circles to look at. Um, And I, you know, I think if you're, if you're, if you, if you have a definition of straightness, you understand that straightness is not curved um even if nothing you ever see is exactly straight you can envision such a thing and then you can do all kinds of things with straight lines that geometers do
3: right yeah and and let's be fair that that example was probably a lot more convincing before we had autocad and and yeah, you can, you can't draw a, a perfectly straight line more or less i guess and maybe not on the molecular level <laughs> Yeah, spoken spoken like a son of an engineer, and one—that's <laughs> what I do now. I'm a what, <laughs> so I spend a lot of time thinking about straight lines. That's
1: good, though. That's clo- that's 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 close to the form of the good here. I mean, we're we're getting somewhere now.
0: He gets to be guardian of the republic now. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Perfect. Believe me, uh, you don't want engineers in charge of the republic.
1: All right. So, well, let's get let's get to the book. Uh, let's get to the book we're we're interested in here at the outset. Socrates. Um, Gives us this this subject, uh, and I'll just start by reading from line five fourteen a. Next, then compare the effect of education and that of the lack of it on our nature to an experience like this. At which point he begins his discussion of the allegory uh, of the cave as we know it. So, um, can we first lay out the basic facts? Of what's what occurs? And what's narrated here um, in this, in this allegory,
0: the, I mean, the allegory of the cave is a very famous uh, sort of, you know, parable to sort of explain the idea of um, enlightenment, I think in some ways. And so you've got um, the, the idea that there are people whose entire experience are in this is in this underground dwelling and what they experience as reality is merely shadows um, cast upon the wall in front of them from the light source behind them and they're unaware of that light source behind them right and so they think of reality as limited to the shadows of the things that they're seeing the reflections um of uh, of what they're seeing and so and then at some point a um a person finds their way out of the of the cave, and and they uh, really struggle um, with reality. There's like uh, they have a hard time seeing in the actual light, and there's this sort of painful process of um, seeing the truth of existence in that way. And, um, and I know Michael's going to hate this. Uh, and Michael probably already knows where I'm going, but it's very much the Matrix, right? It's very much uh, yeah. Neo coming out of the Matrix. The the even some of the reactions that the uh, the enlightened person has remind me very much of those scenes. They were clearly reading this as they were making that movie, and absolutely, yeah. And uh, and so I think that um, that that's. Uh, uh, and then and then they um have the sort of duty to go back and sort of um enlighten other people. That's sort of their uh um their role as an enlightened person, right? Um even though it's uh they can see both the shadow and the true form uh at the same time. And so and you guys can fill in all the gaps that I undoubtedly left.
2: <laughs> I I'm
0: still mostly in the cave, frankly. I'm just kidding.
2: Uh, <laughs> Carla, anything to add? I, I... I think that was well summarized. And I think I think part of what's interesting is, um, Danny, you articulated that there was some obligation for those who were enlightened to go back into the cave and enlighten the others. And yet part of what he lays out is, if someone tries to do that, is it not likely that those people, now that they can see and they have a sense of like um, enlightenment, when they come back into the cave, their vision will be so unrecognizable to the people in the cave that it will be terrifying. And so it's more likely that when the enlightened one comes back into the cave, they will be arrested and killed for having for trying to damage those who are still in the cave right um right. so enlightenment isn't something to be um taken lightly or to um actually expect people to want that it actually once you are enlightened you become somewhat unrecognizable to those who are not according to plato and and perhaps not desirable in any way so um I thought that was an interesting part of the whole metaphor um
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's something almost like prophetic about that. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing someone like John the Baptist, right? Um, who's um, on the outskirts of, of of the of the community and comes in and is beheaded for um, being so just utterly offensive to everyone because he sees a totally different reality. Oh, well, or Socrates. Or Socrates. Yeah, yeah. Himself, yeah.
1: It, it's it's not prophetic. It's in fact biographical, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what do you What do you think about? Uh, one thing you said, uh, Danny, is that, that the prisoner makes his way up out of the cave. I don't think that's quite what happens, right? He's dragged up. It says he doesn't want to leave necessarily, right? I mean, he so he he sees, um, you know, there are these these figures that are under underground and their shadows are all these prisoners know. And he's first released to, you know, see that in fact what he's been looking at all his life is shadows on the wall. Um, and he sees the light, you know, behind it and says, okay, well, you know, now there's a, you know, I, I think these things are more real than what I thought was real, but then, you know, to make it up out into the, realm of the sunlight it's a it's a process that isn't necessarily you know on his own volition um and you know i i think that's that's interesting um when so
0: michael you've taught this a lot, yeah. yes.
1: Danny, so I Danny, have you taught it, or has this been something you've just you've read?
0: Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think I've surely referenced it occasionally, but I don't know that I've ever actually officially taught the book. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um,
1: I, I I wonder whether it's worth thinking a little bit about how students respond to this 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 picture. Um. In in our experiences, or other people who maybe you've related this to. There, there, I mean, there's a couple of things that are, that I think, are interesting that maybe, maybe, just prod your your thinking a little bit is uh, the the question of the obligation of the educated, the obligation yeah. of the enlightened, and the question of the reaction of those un, as yet unenlightened. Those two have all kinds of energy in the discussion when we when we talk about them in, in at least my classes.
3: Well, and I, I think you've got to be careful giving this to young people. Even though, I mean, every intro to philosophy class teaches it, and a lot of other sorts of classes as well, because people in their first two years of college already believe that they're enlightened. They, they've they've already kind of had their mind blown open, and they want to they want to prove to everybody else that they know more than they do. And so there's there's a sense in which you can read the allegory of the cave and get full of yourself that I, that's why I like the idea that the the enlightened person has been dragged up to the surface. This isn't something mm-hmm. they've merited. It's not because they're smarter than everybody else. It's because they just happen to be chosen to be um enlightened. And in fact, you know the other the other side of that is that the college sophomores taking my intro to philosophy class weren't as enlightened as they imagined themselves to be anyway, right? so there's the, there's a sense in which, it's a it's an appealing metaphor because it explains why people don't like you. But maybe also people <laughs> don't like you because you're overstepping, you know? Because <laughs> because you're you're a you're a jerk.
0: Yeah, there is I mean a lot of I'm currently I I've had this lingering interest in conspiracy theories for a long time and I'm teaching a class on it next this upcoming semester. Um but the term red pilling, which comes from uh The Matrix, of course, um has been adopted by the whatever, the conspiracy theorist community, whatever you want to call them. And uh, and, and they do take it as a sort of like badge of honor. Like they know the truth of things. And the reason that Twitter keeps banning them is, is somehow synonymous to uh, the kind of uh, reaction that a Socratic person will get in the, in the cave, by going back to the cave and trying to, you know, um, tell all the sheeple what they should be doing. Right. And so, <laughs> um, and, and so I do think that you're right. There, there is a way in which this does kind of excuse, um, either lazy or conspiratorial thought as well, right? Um, And it's sort of a a way to kind of... um uh, I don't know, in, in evangelical cir- circles, anytime someone doesn't like you for being a jerk, you can always go on, they always talk about the way they're being oppressed by the world, and in, in the, the it, world it, is rejecting their message. Uh, it reminds it, me <laughs>
3: of that, person, um, the man said, get out of here, I'll tear you limb from limb. I said, you know, they refused Jesus, too. He said, you're not him.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, gosh.
1: No, you're you're right to point out this 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 issue of of getting puffed up. I mean, you know, Paul had something to say about that too, um, when one grasps the truth. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, it is. I think it's there's a danger in bringing this to first and second year, well, even f- seniors, to be honest, um, uh, students in that they could uh, take this as something which is a badge of honor for them. Um, but I think it offers the opportunity to actually talk through that sure. and talk through the humility that's required. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's a, it certainly is a learning opportunity, but there's that, there's definitely that danger. Um, they definitely come already thinking they know everything that they need to know. And, Why are we reading this old thing?
3: (laughs) Well, I I think that's one reason it's important to teach more than just the allegory of the cave when you teach the Republic. Because as I'm sure our our listeners have have heard multiple times going um, through this series, uh, this is a radically foreign book with a lot of really disturbing, even crazy ideas. And so when you read the whole thing and then you read the allegory of the cave, you realize that probably you're still a person who's chained inside the cave that you haven't actually been enlightened. If all of this still sounds crazy, at least that's how Plato would see it. Yeah.
2: Well, well and I most think
3: of us are just mishmashes of popular social views anyway. Right. Right. Which sorry, are Carla, oh
2: no. Which are themselves shadows. Right. So, yeah. um, I, I, I don't know. I guess I feel like there there wouldn't be a way to consider oneself enlightened and be enlightened at the same time. <laughs> okay, I think I'm I'm I think that part of the allegory of the cave and, and the whole thing is that the process of being enlightened is to be dazzled by the light, right? Like you mm-hmm. have this sense of like it's not only that the that the person who is chained is drug up out of the cave, but when they get up out of the cave, they not only see the forms, but they see the source of light, and they genuinely have no way to process that. So part of being the enlightened one is to is to accept that there is a whole source of something that you can't fully uh, understand. Do you know what I'm saying? And and mm-hmm. all you're trying to describe when you go back down into the cave is that there are these forms. And then there's this other thing I don't even know how to talk about. You know, I mean, that's that's kind of how I read it a little bit. And so I think the idea that any of us could say, whether we're teaching it or studying it or whatever, that somehow we align ourselves with the enlightened one is to put ourselves in the position of, the observer rather than the observed, and you just can't, you can't be in that place. You can't be, does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It does. (laughs) And and honestly, I was thinking, I wanted to get to this at some point, and I think it's a good point. Um, Mm -hmm. At some point he says something along the lines, and who knows what translation I'm actually reading Um, (laughs) at this point. It's some (laughs) iPad version I bought. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is actually, Um, but uh, something along the lines of anybody who wants to be a leader is not probably qualified to be a leader right um and and so because Mm -hmm. because of what happens to the person who goes into the cave back into the cave the enlightened person um there there is some sort of um harrowing responsibility that comes with that and i think it goes right along with what you're saying there carla about um if you think of yourselves enlightened then you're probably not enlightened right i think that i love the way you put that
3: Right. Well, I mean, that's that's Socrates' whole modus operandi, if you believe him when he says it. Mm-hmm. So if you read the the Apology, which I'm surprised isn't on this list, but it's not. And the Apology, he's told by the Oracle at Delphi that he's the smartest man on Earth. And, and his reaction is, uh, no, I'm not. So what he says he does is he goes around to people who have a reputation for being smart, and he questions them so that he can learn how to be smart like them. But in fact, what he learns is that they don't actually know anything. And he says... Uh, I'm I'm better off than this guy because while neither of us know anything, I at least know that I don't. Yeah. And so there's a there's a kind of epistemological humility to what Socrates claims to be doing here. Now, when I read Plato, I am never struck by Socratic humility. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> he seems he seems pretty arrogant to me. It's a humble but, brag, uh,
0: right? Um. Right. Right.
3: But at least in theory, there's there's an epistemological humility lurking behind all of this.
1: And that's for 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 us when we teach so so we in in our common first year course we teach this allegory we actually teach a, a fair bit of book seven but not all of it um i wish we i'd love to see us teach more um but i think the the antidote to some of what we're getting at here is to read the apology along with because you do see the you see the biographical connection immediately you see the 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 wrestling with enlightenment and recognition of not knowing uh, although you know oftentimes students are very cynical about about socrates and they they all say as you do michael that you know <laughs> he really is an ass and so <laughs> there, there there are times in which they you know can definitely sympathize with the those who are out to uh, have have him uh, put to death um, <laughs> you towards know, the end.
0: <laughs> I actually just um, had the great pleasure of having dinner with Nathan Gilmore um, recently, and he reminded me um, at one of our Socrates Cafe things that we were doing when I was uh, working with him at Emmanuel. At some point, he said something about he compared himself basically to what Socrates was doing, enlightening the minds of the youth. And I apparently said, "Well, you know, they did kill Socrates eventually <laughs> and, uh, for corrupting the uh, youth." Yes, yes, and, that's right. And I don't specifically remember that, but it does sound exactly like something I would have said. So, yeah.
3: Somebody needed to say that to Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you know, it, it's the it's the humor behind benjamin franklin when he w- makes up his table of virtues he's he has humility and the definition of humility is imitate jesus and socrates neither one of whom are humble in any meaningful way i mean jesus is humble i guess he, he gives up his uh his he doesn't give up his divinity but he gives up his space in heaven to come uh take on a fragile human body or whatever but jesus is constantly going around saying things like i am the father am one uh uh, not not humble and Socrates, whatever his whatever his stated objectives, would not feel humble if you encountered him in the street. Mm.
1: Mm. Um, I'm I'm wondering uh, before we move on a little. Um, you know, as as we've been talking, I'm I'm thinking a, a lot about actually life as a Christian and with the knowledge that we have been gifted in, in a real sense um, and how this decidedly non-Christian text speaks to us with regard to things uh, con- surrounding knowledge. Um, is this a good source text for somebody who is exploring those ideas as a Christian?
2: No, just drop the
1: like,
2: bomb. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like our our it would be very hard to suss and pull apart what parts of our Christian understanding are are separate from this. There is so much yeah. um, of what we see as Christian that, as you read this, actually feel, feels platonic. And it would be really fascinating if you could pull those apart. Even your example earlier, Michael, of like the the perfect you know the perfect form or the perfect spirit being God the Father, and and that whole that whole. And our way to participate in goodness is to be participating in in God that is the ultimate good. Um, that that idea that God is somehow so separate from us as to be entirely the the you know the, the what's the word I'm looking for in alignment with all this that 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 is the perfect form. that is the godness and we are like in some ways partaking in God but not God, and that that is unchangeable, we are changeable, all the things we said before about the table or the bed, right? Um, that all feels so uh, entirely like Christian in my upbringing, that as we're talking about it, I'm like, no, actually, that's a pretty platonic idea. What if God is made up of all of us, and God is as changeable as we are in terms of process theology, if you want to go there? Also, the whole idea that God is masculine, the Father, the Spirit is somehow masculine, and that is the perfect form, does an awful lot to our theology um, and our experience of ourselves as humans who follow that God. Um, Anyway, so I I think it's, it's really interesting to realize this isn't at all a Christian text, and yet our form of Christianity is so based in this ideology.
1: But my question is why? Why is it based in this you know um, you know did Paul was Paul a student of the Republic? I mean
3: he, he uh, must have been he there's has so, to there's have so much in Paul that sounds like Plato
1: well, the form of God right I mean the, that those very words are, are, are used uh, well at least in translation so I am hoping I'm not committing a sin of of, of, <laughs> of reading the English and, uh, and not looking at the Greek but um, but you know the, the how much of our um, whether Protestant or Catholic, or or Orthodox or what have you, how much of our conceptions of some of these ideas is read through the lens of medieval, of medieval uh, 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 theologians mm-hmm. who were decidedly Aristotelian um, in so much of of, of 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 their conception of the world. I mean, that's what Galileo got in trouble with for, right? I mean, Galileo was not in trouble for getting his telescope out and saying there are moons around Jupiter. Uh, he was in trouble for me- messing with the Aristotelian conception of the solar system. Not that the Bible had anything to say about the, the things that he was claiming, but he got in trouble because he ran up against the Aristotelian view of the cosmos,
3: uh, that was part of it. I My understanding is he also got in trouble because of just his general attitude toward the church hierarchy, but that's neither here nor there. That is
1: true. That is true. But, but the, right. the, the idea. point is taken here. Yeah.
3: That, that, that much of medieval Christianity is, is massively indebted to the Greeks, largely Aristotle, but also Plato. And of course, Plato and Aristotle are not as far apart- as intro to philosophy classes pretend they are just because it's it's a lot of fun to say oh well you you've just read Plato here's the exact opposite no they're they're actually you know they agree on an awful lot of things um, so yeah I, now as as someone who is converting to Catholicism and is a big fan of Thomas Aquinas and all the rest I don't I'm I'm not I'm not prepared to say that's a bad thing but it is certainly a thing and you do you do have to. Um, You do have to wonder how much we can disentangle uh, Christianity from Platonism and Aristotelianism.
0: I'm like at the beginning of an idea. So this is I'm sure I'm not going to. (laughs) I don't even know where I'm going um, as I begin. But um, it it seems to me that there's a a certain Gnostic form of Christianity that Plato Mm -hmm. is particularly um, a model for this idea of there's like secret knowledge and only like the special people who, you know, put in the work, <laughs> kind of um, um, gain access to the truth of of the relationship between God. If you, if you apply that to sort of, uh, between man and God, uh, if you apply that to um, like Christianity. And so I feel like there's something, um, there's a particularly Gnostic form of Christianity that um, Plato is particularly a source text for as well. And I honestly think that this kind of plays out um, in style uh the style of communication, particularly in the internet era, like t- christian twitter um basically, I think um you have a lot of people who have this kind of egotistic confidence in their enlightenment in, uh, in their sort of uh relationship with the truth and and they they bring this antagonistic confidence to the conversations they have about god um and in in such a way that i don't think plato would necessarily agree with but i think they are sort of the kind of people that aren't ready to do dialectic um, at one point um later on in this book plato talks about people who um are not Mature enough, basically, to be trained in dialectic, right? And and so I do feel like um, I I thought very much of the contemporary discourse that goes around politics and everything else, of course, on Twitter, but um, particularly related to Christian um, ideas.
3: Absolutely, yeah, yeah so, and and you know, they, I'm sure they think of themselves, many of them, as heirs to the Socratic tradition. And yet, when you read um, when you read Plato, you, you've got to remember that Socrates is not the only one going around acting like he knows everything. Yeah. Um, there's there's lots of pricks in uh, <laughs> in Plato who are not in fact Socratic. You know, Thrasymachus probably most visibly in this book, and and you wonder how many of them think they're they're Socrates and are really Thrasymachus. Mm. I won't name any names. They've <laughs> all blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> oh
1: man. So, so cage stage doesn't just apply to Calvinists then
3: is Oh, the a, platonic cage stage. What a wonderful, what a wonderful idea.
1: <laughs> well, when you talked about pricks, all I could think about is kicking against them, but, um, <laughs> but that's, <not laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> well, that's another analogy. In, 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 oh, sorry. <laughs> have we just gone off the rails entirely? I'm afraid we might have, uh, one of you know, but one of the, uh, the uh, well, arguably the purpose of the republic is to grapple with the proper way in which leaders should be educated, and, and much of the rest of book seven deals with, um, returns to that territory. Um, so, uh, what are the key components here? What are the 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 um, what are the things that 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 now after having passed through the allegory um, that inform us? Or inform Plato's audience in terms of the things that philosopher kings, these these rulers of the city, um, must be trained in and engage in.
0: Well, two of them I remember, um, and there's the, the one in the middle, I can't. There's one in which <laughs> they talk about, we don't really know anything about this, but we need to. And I can't remember. Which. There's geometry. There's that thing in the middle that they, uh, I can't, you have to refresh my memory about this. And then finally, astronomy um, are the three. They
2: start with mathematics and then geometry. And then basically they say, next, we should study three-dimensional forms, but we don't actually know how. Yeah. And then astronomy, which is, you know, uh, objects in motion, basically. Um, So those are the four that they lay out in book seven. And again, just basically skipping over the third one because they're like, we actually don't know how or have, you know, the masters who could teach. And uh, even beyond, like, the two-dimensional forms in geometry, they were talking about how that is a thing that you actually need a master to be taught. And that was interesting to me in terms of Mm. our ability to know a straight line. It's what we were talking about. Like, are we born with the ability to know a straight line or do we have to be taught such things, Mm. Um, you know?
1: Well, and there is another. Is it the Meno that has this discussion with the slave boy and yes. uh, yeah about about plane geometry? Anyway, um, the two-dimensional form. Um,
3: well, and, and the point there is that you don't actually have to teach geometry. You have to you have to help students discover that they already know it. So the slave boy is uneducated, and yet Socrates can prompt him through um, a series of, I think, rather complex mm-hmm. mathematical uh, formula. Uh, yeah. It's the midwife.
1: It's, it's, it's the midwife, uh, view of, of the educator. You're giving birth. You're, you're helping the, 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 the student, um, bring forth those ideas, which are resident in the student already.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Which is why dialectic is so important. Right. The, the dial- dialectic is the way we do this. And, and right, audience- there's, Go
0: ahead, Carla. I'm sorry. Well,
2: there's just a little passage here that's interesting in light of this, um, where they. It's. Uh, I don't even have like a, the line notes, but it says. But then, if I'm right, certain pro- professors of education must be wrong when they say that they can put a knowledge into the soul which was not there before, like sight into blind eyes. They undoubtedly say this. He replied, whereas our argument shows that the power and capacity of learning exists in the soul already. Um, and that's that's sort of our conversation here. Are we adding information when we're teaching or are we opening um, what already existed in the soul to know itself, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: And that um, is exactly I, I recently spoke with John Warner about his book about writing, teaching, teaching, writing um, called Why They Can't Write. And his sort of mm-hmm. method, I think, is very platonic in this way, in that he sort of wants to um, give students these sort of writing experiences, he calls them, um, that really kind of mirror what we do in academic writing, which kind of in his mind, I think you sort of already know what to do. You just don't know that you know what to do. Right. And, and right. we just sort of take you from the thing you're already doing and then just sort of show you what it looks like in a different context later on down the road. Right. And so um, I think that there is um, really, I, I think, some powerful pedagogical lessons to be had in in this part of the, of this book.
3: Do you have to accept Plato's understanding of knowledge in order to accept that educational method. Because the reason education works this way for Plato is that between lifetimes, our souls have been banging around in the form of the real or in the reality of the forms. And we remember those things, even if we don't remember that we remember them. And so the the reason Platonic education works this way is because we already know all this stuff anyway. Most people today don't believe we have innate knowledge i don't think and if they if they do i i I would say very few of them believe we have innate knowledge of everything important the way that plato seems to
0: Hmm. i mean i would say that i think i'm not trying to speak for anybody else here um but i would think that the how that is still applicable so you don't have to initially um agree with that metaphysical view of, of human experience, right, of, of the human soul. But we at writing practice, let's just kind of look at a specific example, is sort of embodied human practice, right? And, and it comes out of the way human beings have just sort of learned to communicate with one another. And in certain um, uh, situations, it looks one way, and in another situation, it looks another way. But that practice is still methodologically the same. It's just sort of there are different kinds of standards. And so I think that you could just sort of look at the way in which a student who has just only learned to write on texting and and Twitter and whatnot, uh, not Twitter, but whatever, Um, but they they already sort of um, internalized these practices from the social world, right? Um, And -hmm. so you just want to show them how to kind of translate that to other venues and other um, situations. And so it doesn't necessarily have to come from some mystical uh or, or or sort of soul uh afterlife kind of thing, but it can come just in the lived social experience of being a human being.
3: They're already aware of the bed, now they just need to be made aware of the form of the bed. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That that is a transferable. I mean that's it's it's super interesting because it's almost the reverse of the thing that Plato is saying is that mm-hmm. you've been if your soul has been you know, I, I think it's fantastic that Plato believes in, in that. Um, it's just it's just fascinating. If your soul's been beaten around, you know, with the forms, and then you come back, and so you sort of know the forms. What you're saying, Danny, is somewhat the opposite. That being the the, the practice of being human helps us understand that there are certain things that are that are forms that we share, and yeah. that and we can transfer like our particular knowledge into a more broad or overarching knowledge and express it in different form, different forms. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Exactly. That you said it <laughs> yeah. much better than I did, actually, um, which is not a surprise, honestly. Um, and and so the um, it's I guess it's the, the way in which Aristotle and Plato are not that different that Michael referred to earlier. Like this is a very materialist Arist- Aristotelian um, version of what Plato was doing, but it, the outcome isn't all that different, really. It's just sort of the the way you conceive of the setup to that outcome. Right.
3: Well, well there's it, also a nominalist version of that pedagogy. It's called constructivism, right? We we don't impart information. What we do is help our students to create their worldview or create their understanding or create their own truth or tell their own story. All of that implies that there is no real reality. There's just kind of what we call things. Mm-hmm. But that's the very opposite of what Plato's talking about. Right. Can I cut you off again, Carla? I'm sorry.
2: Oh, no, that's okay. I think the, back to our conversation about Christianity, like if if Plato believes it's through reincarnation and beating around with forms that we get to this state of understanding, you know, um, do we believe, do Christians believe in some way that we have uh, the sort of um, <coughs> forms inside of inside of us already in our souls because our souls are of God and somehow that's the godness in us that understands? Do you know what I'm saying? There are other mm-hmm. ways to arrive at that same conclusion that we have some knowledge of forms that we come with rather than that we gain that knowledge of forms as we are human. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, we could get into a very long discussion then about the fall and what the fall does to those, uh, (laughs) the conception (laughs) of the forms, but, uh, perhaps that's a, uh, you know, the, the fall does bring a, a whole other dimension to this, um, which, which perhaps if we went down that road, we'd be spending another hour. Um, (laughs) <laughs> going, going down that direction, um, but I, I am interested to to um, bring us to something which maybe a little bit more practical timely relevant or what have you as we think about the political season in which we're entering um <laughs> maybe oh, oh this boy, is god we...
3: forbid somebody bring up politics in these episodes uh, <laughs> uh, a danger a
1: dangerous uh place to to tread but uh we, you know, we've got about 15 more minutes or so before we're at an hour and um i i'm curious you know what do we think you know Where did, where did the, where do we go off the rails in terms of our, um, views of, of training or educating people unto leadership? Um, what's the difference, you know, what, how is it that we view, um, qualities, uh you know what are the qualities that we you know have embraced that we want our politicians our leaders you know we can stay out of politics and just talk about leadership in general um what are those what are those qualities that we want and how do they compare to what we see in plato
3: well i think we live in a deeply thrasymachian society so thrasymachus says what is justice justice is the will of the stronger And I I think that's the society we live in. And I I think it got that way for a number of reasons. But I'm fascinated by the way that evangelical Christians in particular have picked up on it and they're okay with it. Mm -hmm. So there's a real sense, I think, in which evangelicals support Donald Trump because he hits the hardest, because Mm -hmm. he's willing to he's willing to fight. When you attack him, he hits you back even harder. Right. He says things that own the libs. And, and it, it's not really about truth and it's not really about virtue. It's about who can make their will prevail and whose side they're on. And in, and in that sense, I found reading The Republic really in its entirety to be kind of chilling because of the, the ways in which I recognize the society I live in. And our listeners will get more of that in the next episode, which is on book eight, which I'm also mm-hmm. on, but which I recorded a full month ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you're scooping yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a taste. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a taste
1: of things to come. Other thoughts?
2: I love what you said there, Michael, so much. I think that, that um whatever it is about our, our Christian faith or evangelicalism, how that's gotten skewed toward it's sort of outcome based, like whatever out whatever wins must be on the side of God in some way. Um and and that's sort of like um prosperity gospel and all those kinds of things. There's something about that that sort of keeps ringing through and it felt true in what you were saying. Um, But one of the things I felt as I was reading this in terms of political, how politicians should be educated or trained was that basically what part of what, um, they were saying what plato is saying in here is that a politician or someone who's going to lead our community should not be a professional politician they mm-hmm. should have some other occupation some other thing that they care about that drives their life and they should take a time to serve the republic as a leader but it shouldn't be their primary their primary um, goal. Or, or So this whole idea of career politicians and how we've gotten to a point where what we have are career politicians and and that's how we function in our politics rather than people who have other expertise, other knowledge, other life, um, and then they go to serve us for a while as our politicians and our leaders is kind of a fascinating, uh, fascinating idea that caught me as I was reading it. But at
3: the same time, Plato doesn't want you to swing back the other direction and think that political knowledge is not its own field that needs to be studied and inculcated and taught. I mean, it's not like you could just um, pick up politics and be good at it. This is is something you have to work at and study, but
2: there's a difference between
3: that and, and making it your career, I suppose.
2: Right. I think so. But I'm curious about that, because that was one of the things as I was thinking about it and talking about it with friends that was like, how could you possibly have the political knowledge that you would need to do the job if you didn't make a lifetime of it? Like, it's genuinely that complex. And I'm not sure how you could. So I don't think there's a real argument to be made anymore, or ever, maybe, for that, that you don't have to have a lifelong commitment to politics to be able to do it well, Um uh, then I just want to get into like campaign finance and stuff because then it's that's where it gets messy. So, like, right, <laughs> like, right. like you could be a career politician, but could we maybe not have it? Just you know, whoever has the most for advertising, or anyway.
3: Well, well, and I mean, one interesting thing about the political structure of the republic is that the people who are in charge of it are incapable of profiting personally from it at all. They don't even own personal property. So I, I do think he before. he foresees that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, in, I was on the episode on from book three, and this for some reason came up. Then um, I was talking with someone about Star Wars, and 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 it seems to <laughs> me that the Jedi are kind of almost in this sort of prequel trilogy, trilogy especially. Um, there are these kind of possessionless um, guardians of the galaxy, if you will. Right. Um, Who are trained in both kind of physical activity, but also in wisdom and knowledge. And they seem to me kind of almost like a thought experiment for what Plato's Republic might look like uh, in space, I guess. Um, and, uh, And, and so, but that requires something that's so antithetical to the foundation of our country, especially in that, I mean, you're just sort of, you're picking people out who are talented in certain ways and they go into this in this book. Um, And you know, when they're 10 years old, you identify people and you conscript them to a life. Right. And there's there's such a, I don't know, like there's, there's such a, 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 there's such an authoritarianism um, that the Republic depends on that. One, the nature
3: of justice is literally, For everyone to know his place in society and stick to it.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's my point. And and, and I think that you're right. I think the one thing that keeps the the Republic as, you know, potentially uh, viable is the taking away the idea of personal profit. Right. And then therefore no one wants to be the leader for kind of greedy purposes. You're sort of you have to be, and then you don't want to stay in that position. As, as Carla was saying, you, you have the, the outcome of making that a profitable position is that you then have a career um, that is possible in politics. And, and so, and I think that um, the, the, if Todd's original question was, where did we go off the rails? I just don't think we buy into the, the philosophy of, of social organization that, that the Republic depends mm-hmm. on. And, and education is the same way. I mean, I think that um, we believe too much. I mean, I'm not saying we believe too much in the individual we believe too much in the individual for this to work is what I'm saying
1: well and I wonder too what the chief value is um, for us have, have, have we well has ha, has there been a society in which the chief value of the knowledge and and celebration of the good of the you know of, of, of this capital G good um has that been the chief virtue anywhere
0: at any time yeah. but can you even imagine but, in America a consensus about what right. the what the capital right. G good is right well, mean, right.
3: think of think of Kennedy saying that part of the definition of freedom is the freedom to define your values
0: and who's to say that's wrong right I mean I, I kind of right. agree with that
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> so. yeah yeah I mean to get yeah Oh, go ahead. I mean, go, go well, ahead. I just, I mean
0: it, there are
1: all kinds of worms out now, so we can play in them.
2: I think you know to get to a, a, a definition of a capital capital G good, and then to make everyone align with it is is fascism, isn't it? I mean, so I don't uh, something like that. <laughs> <But> the <laughs>
3: alternative, the alternative is nihilism, because to say there, to say that everyone has their own definition of the good is to say, in effect, there is no good. Unless to say everybody to creates their own that, values to is degree, to say there but... are no real
0: values except for the ability to create your own value.
3: Mm-hmm. But and and at that point how do you not end up in a thrasymachian society right. where where the, the the best thing I can do is to um to push hard enough so that my values are the ones that
2: because obtain. But that is that is opposed to the central value that Danny just articulated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because then one has to win. You know That, what that mean. central it, value it's is an empty value. What's that? That
3: central value is an empty value. If the central value is simply that there are no values other than you can create your own values, that is not a value. It doesn't it doesn't hold together. I I I really think that that, that the pervasiveness of that idea is part of the problem.
0: I don't disagree with that at all. I'm just I wasn't right. advocating that position. I'm just <laughs> identifying it as the only the only true position we hold is a, a, a society.
1: Well, I think, and and what gets difficult then is we also live in a universe in which, um, uh, you know, 50% plus epsilon is sufficient for deciding questions. True. And... Yeah. You know, so then then we oscillate back and forth. This reminds me of your episode on the multiverse, Danny. Is what I'm thinking of right now. Good grief! No, um, we don't need to go down that road either. But I mean, I you know, there are so many ways in which um, our current model and and models that would be more extreme, perhaps you know, direct democracy of 300 million people, which the Greeks would say, "What are you out of your mind?" Um, you know, there's a reason why they would say, are you out of your mind? And it has to do with these things that we've, that we've been batting around. Um, we are at about an hour. Um, I wonder whether it would be worth going around and just picking out uh, a thing or two that you would like to you know, bring up that we haven't
0: talked about yet. Um, Danny, maybe? Yeah, well, let me – there's one sort of note towards the end of this that I thought, gosh, it was really interesting, um, where he talks about um, if you try to make somebody learn something, that's the surest way to guarantee that they won't, right? There's some some, uh, (laughs) – really, I think, identification that there's a problem with compulsory education. You have to Mm – like to actually (laughs) learn something has to spring from some self – some intrinsic motivation some sort of intrinsic desire on on one's own part to actually learn something and i think as educators as someone who i mean i teach classes that people have to take right <laughs> my whole <my> <laughs> bread and butter is based on this right and and i think that um the the best i can do in that situation is to sort of try to at the beginning of a course especially and then throughout hammer home some or at least, I mean, provide an access to some in uh, from, from on a personal level for why they should care about this, right? And so um, I know I live in a world of compulsory <clears throat> education, but I have to sort of actually teach in such a way in which I'm trying to kind of give them an individual um, interest, um, and an individual desire to actually learn what I'm trying to teach. Um, and, and so I think that that was actually really kind of – I'd forgotten that little – tidbit in there. And I think it's actually kind of uh, something as I'm working on my syllabi for next semester, something to bear yeah. in mind.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's profound. Um, and I think, I, I think you're right to, to, to look at that um, call to anyone who is an educator to, to remember the wedding, the appetite is something we need to be doing. Um, uh, Carla, what about you?
2: Um, goodness. I, I think that one of the things that struck me as I read this book, book seven was um, he talks regularly about turning the eyes upward or, or being drawn toward truth um, and the Mm -hmm. idea of the, of the soul, the soul having a draw toward truth and that that, um, he never talks about discovering truth, but being drawn toward it, I guess. And that whole being drawn toward seems to be truth in some way, um, Mm -hmm. or seems to be the good that he's trying to define, rather than than having arrived at it. Um, And it's sort of the seek and you will find problem where maybe the seeking is the finding, it's the act of seeking. Um, That seems to be Uh, just implicit in a lot of what he talks about in terms of learning and that doesn't mean that there aren't things to be learned but it is the posture of moving toward truth that he seems to hold as the highest value.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd have yeah no that's really interesting I I, I, and I don't I'm not well versed enough in in Plato or others um, to to know if this what I'm about to equate here is equated, in fact. But the the Greek understanding of motion, uh, uh, or of you know just just the physical existence of various substances, is that they all take their right place. So steam rises because it should, because it rises to the perfect, right, uh, which is upward. And you know heavy things fall, and they fall because. They need to fall towards the lowest, towards the center of the earth. To, well, uh, uh, to, to bring, I guess that you know it's it's inherent in Greek cosmology too. Um, but you know things fall because that's what they should do. They fall because they are heavy. They have weight. Steam rises because it uh, ascends naturally. And does the soul naturally have this tendency to seek out? The good, which is up, I just don't know if those two things are directly connected anywhere. I would imagine that Aristotle might do it, but
3: it's a very optimistic uh, viewpoint if you think about it. I mean, I think of the Republic as being a very pessimistic book, but mm. I
1: would say it's Optim- optimistic.
2: And- yeah, optimistic because it feels somewhat inevitable, Michael. Like that, it implies that the soul will move that direction.
3: Yeah, that that that. Yeah, if we, if we're all kind of naturally we all naturally want to know the truth but I, i'm not sure i would agree with that right um i I don't know that, that people do naturally want to know the truth but it it you know if plato believes they do that's that's a positive thing
2: yeah i guess i don't know that i saw him saying that they do want to that everyone wants to but that 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 the one who does pursue that is the one who is enlightened whether or not they ever reach <clears throat> the capital T truth. Mm, that's, that's good because. yeah so yeah
3: cool michael, the The importance of dialectic in education, I think, flies in the face of the two or at least two major um, ideas about education in the twenty first century. Uh, one is what Paulo Freire called the banking concept of education, where you're just mm-hmm. giving information and the students are kind of accruing it and then spitting it back out on the test. And the other is that constructivism that I talked about, that education is about helping people to create their own truth. I really like the idea that the, the purpose of the Socratic dialogue is not to lead students toward a truth, but toward the truth, capital T, that there is something objectively true, objectively good, um, but that the idea is not just to hammer people with it, it's to kind of go around the back way, and uh, trick is too strong of a word, but trick them into believing it. Hmm.
1: That's good. No, I, what I What I like about that is the... Um, the idea, and I would just formulate it, I guess, this way: that as educators, you're hopefully teaching students to be travelers in ideas, um, mm-hmm. to travel toward something that's bigger than themselves. Um, that they'll perhaps never fully grasp, but the act of traveling that road is is the you know the the, the reward of doing it is 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 a good one
0: and and i guess going back to carlos thing about aspiring mm. towards something that may be impossible i think i mean we live in a in a real material world and the material conditions of our education system is one geared towards the banking model and job training right and, and so there's just no way to really I mean you can 't deny that reality, like we live in a reality where people are taking my classes because they have to, um, and in order to get that degree because for some reason they think that 's going to help them down the road right and and I think that me as an educator then I have to somehow um pretend like in the space of my classroom during the fifteen weeks that I have them um, that I can do something different than that like a long, while I, like somehow. Uh, almost like a Trojan horse sort of thing I've got something I'm sneaking into the institution <laughs> and so um, and and then uh, and from within once I've got once I'm now that I'm inside the gates I can uh, I can actually uh, try and do some of that work right and, because I think that um, it's just it's an insurmountable thing to try and change the definition of what they're there for, right? You're never going to do that. Um, Hmm. The best you can do is just try to give them a little glimpse of the outside of that cave. (laughs) You
2: like have to, you have to open like a curiosity gap. And this relates mm -hmm. to the book too. He talks a little bit about like, you can't have curiosity about that. These are three fingers. (laughs) Basically he goes into a whole thing where you can, with your eyes say, these are fingers and there's not a curiosity gap there. So you don't actually have a place for your intellect to go. But to ask questions about size or, you know, you have to like open that 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 gap between what you can see with your eyes and name and what you want to know about that thing. Um, And so as educators, it seems like, um, Danny, what you're saying is interesting, that if you can take the thing that is, you know, compulsory and feels like just flat job training and actually open the curiosity gap and figure out what is it that would be their why between here and there. No, it's
3: an interesting I'm idea. A, I'm a parasite. Man, you guys are making me sorry I left <laughs> higher ed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting to me the, the the of all the things that we are concerned about with the current crop and future crops of of high school seniors who then enter the realm of college for those of us for whom that's relevant. Um. The thing that we complain about is how much they don't know, but should we not be complaining, concerned about how how little they might be curious?
3: Oh, that was always my complaint, Todd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: and I, yeah, go ahead. I'm just saying. I, I, while it's true, I think every individual has the responsibility, the moral obligation to be intelligent, as as Lionel Trilling would say, right? Um, mm-hmm. We can't deny that they are products of a system that has taught them to, to be that way, right? And so this is right. not a flaw in the system. This is the system working as it's designed to work. Um, and Mass society. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's a well, sad uh,
1: note to end on, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: This is why they made Socrates drink hemlock again. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, indeed. Indeed. Well, this has been a, a hoot, guys. I, I, I would love to keep on going, but uh, time is uh, is winging forth. Um, we ought to, to wrap it up. So, um, dear listeners, you've got uh, a few more episodes of Core Curriculum to come, but I uh, want to thank you for listening. CORE Curriculum is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. The network's press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Michael Farmer does our audio editing. Uh, We'd encourage you to take a listen to our other network shows, not limited to, but including those represented here on this particular episode of CORE Curriculum, uh, namely the Christian Feminist, the Christian Humanist, Sectarian Review, and the Book of Nature. So on behalf of Carl Ewert, uh, Michael Farmer, and Danny Anderson, this is Todd Pedler saying thanks, as always, for listening to us and joining us, indeed.